I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. For decades now, scholars of American foreign policy have urged that we apply international methods to study international relations. Ernest May, for example, counseled us to go to foreign archives and study the past from non-American perspectives, and that impulse has only gained in momentum. Others, like Petra Gadi or Akira Iri, have encouraged us to consider American foreign policy in a global or transnational context. There are many advantages to this prism. It provides a holistic view of the way that ideas, people, goods, and culture move across borders, and it shows the connections and dislocations among communities. It facilitates a diversity of voices and engenders empathy. With that in mind, if we turn our attention to Europe in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, what do we see? Several competing empires are in the process of colonizing Africa and Asia, building economic networks, expanding their military might, promoting their culture, and increasing their influence. Germany is the new empire on the block. France and Britain are racing to gather as many overseas territories as possible, while Portugal and Spain are generally on the decline. Almost every European nation is seeking colonies, whether small atolls in the South Pacific, African riverbeds, Caribbean islands, or ports along China's coast. Now, why does this matter for the United States? We know that the U.S., by the end of the 19th century, will acquire an overseas empire to add to its already expansive continental empire. But before that, how did European imperialism affect the American mindset? How did the U.S. react to the so-called scramble for Africa and China? How did the U.S. view anti-colonial revolutions in places like Egypt? These are the questions that Professor Andrew Priest confronts in his latest book, Designs on Empire, America's Rise to Power in the Age of European Imperialism. Andrew is a senior lecturer of history at the University of Essex in the UK, and before writing Designs on Empire, he's written on American foreign relations in the 20th century. His first monograph, Kennedy, Johnson, and NATO, is pretty much the standard text for understanding the transatlantic security alliance in the 1960s. And he's also published a wonderful edited collection with Andrew Johnston on presidential elections and foreign policy, which is a comprehensive look at elections from the 1940s to the 1990s and how they directly impacted on international relations. You can think of neutrality policies in the 1930s all the way to Clinton's wag the dog war in Kosovo. I'm delighted that he's decided to turn back the clock and explore the 19th century. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks very much, Mike. Really pleased to be here. 
Well, I'm pleased you're here as well, not least because I know you better as a 20th century historian. Uh, your first book was on transatlantic relations in NATO. It's really become a very standard text for that, that time period and, and the Kennedy-Johnson years. Uh, I, I'm just so curious, what made you decide to go back to the 19th century? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, it, it's actually part of the answer, at least, is to do with um, the teaching that I was doing at the time. Uh, I started teaching more on uh, the early years of uh, US uh, foreign policy. And um, I became more and more interested in what you might call the, the origins of, of US power, and especially the relationship between politics, diplomacy, and, and ideas and ideology in, in, in the development of that power. And, um, and as I got more and more into it, there seemed to be more to say about, uh, about that kind of thing than had already been said. And I sort of started asking around and uh, talking to a few people and trying to bounce a few ideas. And one of the things that, that came up was um, about the relationship between the US as it became more imperial, if you like, and, uh, uh, and the other empires. And uh, so I, I was also aware, you know, being influenced by uh, some of the, the books that I'd read when I was an undergraduate, especially um, things like uh, you know, Walter Lefebvre's The New Empire, uh, that, uh, that this was a really kind of rich area. And I, and, and I just sort of a, a, a rich area and a, an important time period. And I felt that perhaps it needed kind of revisiting in a way. And um, so this is the, the, the uh, late uh, 19th century before the US became an empire itself in, in most people's minds. And so these things all sort of started to come together. And, um, and I, I, I suppose uh, I just wanted to kind of set myself a bit of a new challenge. Um, uh, so there was also a, a kind of practical element to it as well in the, you know, there's, there are a lot of people working on, on the Cold War, on post-1945 uh, US history and especially US foreign policy. And, uh, and I, I just thought it would be interesting to move into a new area. So as I said, these things sort of came together and, uh, and I started to, to, to do a bit, of, uh, a bit more reading and then a bit of research. And I, and I got to the point where I thought, I, actually, I, could, I think I could do this. And I think I could say something interesting and new uh, about this uh, period, uh, about the, uh, the, the US at this time, and, and especially about the US relationship with empire. Naturally, I agree with you entirely uh, about the Cold War and contemporary history dominating the field. What your book does is, is, it, is that it explores American foreign policy from the years after the Civil War to 1898, which is, as you say, that year that we all think America becomes an empire. And, the, and what happens in that period is a massive expansion of colonial territory that we don't always associate with American empire. Do, do you want to tell us why these years are so formative and maybe even summarize how the United States viewed European empires? Sure. So um, I, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you think that I'm glad you you kind of uh, responded in that way. And I think you're right about the um, the fact that sometimes the, the the period of new imperialism or whatever you want to call it in European history is um, uh, is often kind of dislocated or separated from things that are going on in the US. And I, I did really want to, uh, that was one of the reasons I started to look in a bit more detail at, at, at this particular period, because I I thought, you know, that, that there is something important to say here about bringing these, these two sort of strands together. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I, I, I think these, th this particular period is, is so important because of the, 
the fact that the, the US was um, uh, expanding so rapidly at the time economically, of course, you know, it was mass massive immigration, which was changing its um, uh, relationship with the, the rest of the world in, in all kinds of different ways. And uh, other scholars have, have looked at that. Uh, and, um, and so I think this is, in, in many ways, these were the kind of formative years uh, in terms of U.S. expansionism, uh, foreign policy, uh, I don't think you know that. The, I didn't want to to think of them as as kind of exclusively formative because I think they're important in and of themselves. There's always a danger, I think, in the, looking at 1898 and kind of projecting back and and saying. So I, I didn't. I didn't sort of. You know, that's important to a degree, but I didn't want to do it sort of exclusively. But I think it's very important to consider the period. From the Civil War, the Civil War obviously is a, is a uh, crucial period in foreign policy, but the fact that um, the U.S. was uh, was changing so rapidly, and these changes had to have an important influence on the way it was uh, uh, thinking about the world and, and responding to changes that, that were taking place there. I mean, in terms of the the um, the way that the the, the book came about, um, I. Uh, you know, I, I originally thought about um, trying to uh, do it as a kind of narrative history of, 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 of changing ideas about empire uh, and sort of doing it as a kind of broad treatment, almost like a kind of long, long essay or something like that. But I just, I, as I got more into it, I, I thought that was going to make it difficult to read kind of quite um, uh, diffuse and, and and sort of not particularly helpful to, to, to people. And so in the end, what I decided to do is the series of what I've been calling kind of case studies where uh, looking in, in depth a, a number of different episodes. And I could see that there were potentially disadvantages to doing that way, but it seemed to me that there were enough advantages to, to uh, do it like that. So in the end, I ended up looking in, in uh, some detail at responses to the French Empire, especially over um, the uh, intervention in the 1860s uh, in Mexico, where France moved to put a, a, a European prince on the Mexican throne, uh, then the um, uh, Spanish Empire in relation to Cuba, and especially the Ten Years' War from the late 1860s through, the, through to the mid late 1870s, and then looking at um, British intervention in Egypt in the early 1880s and, and um, therefore the British Empire and then looking at European empires more broadly but especially um, uh, the German Empire in um, uh, the 1880s uh, and uh, uh, particularly with reference to the, um, the conference in Berlin that, uh, that, that carved up uh, West Africa during that period. I mean, I think the case studies make perfect sense, the reasons why they're there, you make a good case for them. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a little bit about individual cases that really struck me as important and formative. But I, I also wanted to ask you about how European empire comes to influence American ideas, as well as the actions in those case studies. How does European imperialism come to give the United States the sense of its own foreign policy? Yeah, so I think firstly, I would say that um, uh, the United States was born out of an empire. And so it's important, you know, for, as the starting point, if you like, for, for understanding the US. And I think, especially for understanding US ideas, because there's, I think, you know, there's, there's an almost um, uh, kind of instant reaction among most uh, Americans that the United States fought against an empire and therefore it is anti-imperial. And I realize that may be massively oversimplifying, but I start the book with a quotation from Barack Obama, 
you know, the uh, you know, supposedly at least uh, liberal uh, uh, politician who made a couple of um, uh, important statements in relation to this, but one of which was I start the book is, is that the United States isn't like other empires because it's not self-interested. That's what he says. And in, in, in the US isn't looking for resources or territory. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, this struck me as a very interesting kind of jumping off point because it's, it's, um, it's the way that uh, it, it kind of illustrates the way that uh, Americans uh, still in recent times think about the United States as being different from European empires. And I think that's a really crucial aspect of this, that there is a, um, there's, a there's an almost kind of knee-jerk reaction, I suppose, to, uh, to, to, to ideas about European imperialism where they're taken as being negative, of course, and, and, and the United States is taken as being different. And um, even though uh, there may be recognition that the US does some kind of similar things to those empires in that it, you know, it played it's played an increasingly important global role that it's um, that it's uh, uh, gone out and, and at times uh, done things that look a lot like um, imperialism. Uh, for the most part, it hasn't done those kinds of things. If it's expanded, it's expanded into contiguous territory. When it hasn't done that, that's tended to be the exception rather than the, the rule. Uh, and, you know, this helps to, to, to tell a particular kind of story. So I think this is the way that the European empires uh, are juxtaposed a lot of the time with with stuff that's that's going on in the US. And I, I wanted to really complicate that story and, and um, uh, talk about the ways that uh, that Americans kind of accepted aspects of, of European imperialism under certain circumstances and that could also help explain how these ideas could um, influence uh, the ways that, that Americans thought about how the United States should act on the global stage. In fact, we could probably get into a long debate or conversation about what American empire looks like, you know, how we use it as a lens to understand policy. There's been so much written about that over the last 20, 25 years. So your book outlines a number of ways that the U.S. believed it was different from Europe. Can you tell us about those and, and what that might say about American exceptionalism? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I think the, the U.S. thought of itself as, as being different in, in a number of different uh, ways. Um, firstly, I suppose the, 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 the way that it um, had to respond to empires was, was important here. And I talk about this uh, in the book in that the U.S., uh, even after independence, continued to, to, to struggle with, with empires. Empires were a direct material threat to, to the United States. And so um, it tended to um, regard these, of course, very, very negatively. So you, you're talking about the continued influence of the Spanish Empire, uh, the French Empire in North America to a, uh, to a lesser extent, and obviously the, the British Empire in the Caribbean and, and to, the, to the north in, in Canada and what became Canada. Um, so all of these um, uh, things influenced uh, American thinking because it was uh, it, it affected everyday politics in in in, um, in the United States in the early years, especially as it was a very precarious republic in the in the in the early decades. Um, I, I think increasingly this was um, was was tempered and influenced by uh, the Monroe Doctrine. 
after 1823 um, in, in the ways that, uh, that the United States uh, started to, to use the doctrine increasingly and in, in, in its salience uh, grew over the course of the 19th century uh, and especially in relation of course to, to the Americas to, to what increasingly became seen as uh, the United States uh, backyard as it were. So I think this also um, uh, uh, influenced the way that uh, Americans thought of themselves as being different because they now had this kind of this this document, this doctrine that they could refer to um, and uh, uh, and talk about the the, the influence of uh, the uh, the United uh, the, the the European powers on, on the United States, uh, and I think uh, all of these things kind of led to the idea that uh, that the United States was different, that the United States was um, uh, was uh, opposed uh, in large part to, to um, these European empires. And um, this had a, a very long-term impact. And in the first chapter of the book, I actually talk about lots of these uh, kind of antecedents, if you like, to the, the, the main uh, points that, that I was trying to make about the, the 1860s and beyond, that a lot of these early ideas about anti-imperialism, about um, uh, the way that the United States was was thinking itself, uh, thinking of itself in, in opposition to the European empires, uh, were being formulated long before the Civil War. I was going to pick up on that. So there's been a good deal written about the Monroe Doctrine and the intentions of it lately, probably more so than there has been you know, back when Walter Lefebvre was writing The New Republic, uh, or The New Empire, I should say. Um, and it seems to talk a little bit more about intent, the intent of the doctrine, the intent of the United States, what's what the foreign policy's intentions are. Herfried Munkler, who you cite in your book, has this definition of imperialism that talks about a will to empire, that a state necessarily desires uh, an empire. Do you think the U.S. has that will to empire in the 1860s, or, or at some stage do you see in the Gilded Age progressive era that it develops this will to empire? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I think um, I think the, the the short answer to that is yes. I think it's it's definitely uh, developing that will to empire, but I suppose it also depends on the type of empire that you're talking about, because there's you know it, it's it's relatively easy to see how if you regard empire as being uh, an aggressive form of expansionism uh, and, uh, you know, and, and um, uh, imposition of, a, of uh, your will on and, and rule on, on um, other territories and peoples, then without doubt, um, uh, the United States was doing that from its earliest days. I mean, you, know, you have to look at the, the expansion across the United States, uh, the imposition of uh, slavery on new territories, all, all of these different kinds of things are definitely um, uh, a, a will to empire. Um, of course, where Americans would draw a distinction in large part is, is about uh, non-contiguous territories, that uh, through most of this period, uh, I think most Americans would say the United States doesn't do the same kind of thing where it, you know, it, it builds a navy uh, to, to go overseas and conquer, uh, uh, conquer territories. Now, of course, that is starting to change, uh, and there's evidence of this in, in various different contexts, even before uh, the United States uh, goes to war with Spain, uh, invades Cuba and the Philippines. Um, but I would still say, and uh, but of course, this is this is in essence all of these things that have gone before. One of the reasons that it sets off this. Uh, debate in the United States in 1898, because it's it's really uh, uh, contrasting with it's, it's, it's rubbing up against this 
idea again about what the, the Americans do. Um, one of the other points though, in, in terms of the, the will to empire is, is the, uh, the sense that the United States is building at this time. And, and certainly the many of the elites that I'm talk, I focus on mostly in the book, uh, the, the sense that they're getting that they, that they can do at least some of the things that the European powers are doing. And, and what, that's one of the reasons why I sort of um, build the book to the, the, the last substantive chapter is about the Congo conference in, in Berlin in 1884 and 1885, because this is a, you know, an actual uh, moment where the United States is having to grapple with this um, uh, problem of, um, you know, anti-colonial imperialism or whatever you want to call it, where um, they're, they're actually dealing with the European powers. And um, even though in the end they, they reject the treaty because a new administration, a supposedly anti-imperial administration comes in, um, there's, I think it's still a very important moment because it, it, all, through all of this, the attitudes to empire, the, the um, thinking about empire, you know, it doesn't just move in a straight line. It 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 goes backwards and forwards. It uh, it it's um, uh, there are different strands of thought running simultaneously. It's an incredibly complex complex process. But I think more and more you can see uh, a sense that the uh, the policymakers in the United States regard themselves as being increasingly important players in in the world, and uh, that part of that means you know, operating in certain ways. And because it is an imperial world, that, that means that they're, they're a part of it. Um, so, so I think that's, that's really where a lot of this kind of imperial mentality comes from. W. Brands once described it, I forget, I forget the book, but he, he once described US foreign policy as vacillating between um, <clears throat> leadership by example, and maybe that harkens back to that anti-colonial, uh, post-colonial uh, view of themselves, America. Uh, uh, and then on the other hand, actively remaking the world in its own image. And do you think there's some distinctions to be drawn between the imperialism of continental expansion and the imperialism of overseas or non-contiguous expansion? Yeah, there are some distinctions to be drawn, I think, but I think I'd be careful about drawing too clear a distinction between it, um, because I think, you know, there are there are very obvious uh, tr similarities and, and, and traits that you can see uh, in both, because, uh, you know, it is to do with power uh, and thinking about power and thinking about the ways that power um, is used. And a lot of the stuff I discuss in the book, I think it's very important to think about um, uh, race uh, and hierarchies of race and the way that um, different ter territories are conceptualized in different ways and the people and obviously the peoples within them I'm, I'm talking about here so so I think I'd be cautious about drawing too clear a distinction between those two things but I think where, where you're absolutely right on this is that um, it is um, thinking about the difference between and, and this is where the you know looking at the Monroe Doctrine is so um, illustrative thinking about the difference is between um, leading by example and then you know the more kind of uh, remaking the world or remaking uh, aspects of it because I think there is a, 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 I think where it starts to shift especially in the period that I'm looking at is it, it does move uh, from uh, more of a kind of uh, 
US as, as example to, to a more kind of interventionist um, uh, and more kind of active uh, role that, that is taking place. It's still limited at this stage and I can't make any claims that, you know, it, it's clearly, 1898 is a is there's no doubt that it's a it's a key moment in the development of American imperial thinking as as well as some um, uh, its its actions. But I, I I think there's there's a lot more going on beneath the surface, and I think the this tension between uh, leading by example and 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 sort of remaking the world I think is is really um, uh, it's it's much more of a struggle during this period. A lot to unpack there too. It's a bit unfair of a question, really, in some ways, because you know the differences between settler colonialism and maybe a more sort of um, a formal colonialism or territorial expansion without the same sort of settler status that maybe Australia would have had or you know New Zealand. It's there's different types of empire that we're talking about here. I think it's great that your book doesn't dodge the issue of race. It's front and center throughout it. That's really important, and I think we could you know look at the way the U.S foreign policy looks at race, whether it's in Cuba, in Mexico, in Egypt, or in Africa. But I, but I was actually most interested in, when I was reading the book, about what American foreign policymakers thought about Europeans and racial, racially, the hierarchies that there are in Europe at this time. So how is that? What do policymakers think about, say, the difference between Spain and Britain, France, and Germany? So yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think you're right. There's been a lot of focus on uh, racial different or perceived racial differences in in you know conquered territories or, or or colonial spaces or whatever. And I think there is probably a lot more to be said on on how uh, the the U.S. regards um, uh, the the imperial <laughs> the imperialists. Um, I mean, one of the points I wanted to make in the book is that. Um, the, this kind of um, different sense, uh, this different perception of, of um, these uh, imperialists, so uh, France, uh, Spain, uh, Germany, Britain, um, it is very important, but I think it's also firstly important to note that um, they, I think on the whole, Americans regard themselves as being more closely um, affiliated with those imperialists than they do with the, with the uh, the Cubans, the Mexicans, uh, the, the uh, Egyptians that they're looking at. So I think this kind of affinity is really, really important. But there are differences within that. And they do have, you know, what I increasingly started to think of as like a kind of like hierarchies of empire or hierarchies of imperialism. Um, because they, um, they, they definitely, on the whole, there's no doubt that the British Empire however cynical people are about it. And there are a lot of people who are of course opposed to it in the United States who think that, that Britain is a, is, a, is a terrible imperial uh, leader uh, in the world and knows its power is peaking around this time. There's no doubt that there is a, there is more sympathy for some of the things that Britain is doing uh, than uh, the most of the other powers that are being discussed here. So there's a kind of, I always, call it a, a sort of grudging admiration for the fact that Britain has been more successful than these other powers, um, certainly in comparison to a, an imperial power like Spain, which is obviously fading very rapidly at this time. And um, there's so there's a there's a sort of tension there between on the one hand, going back to what I was saying about um, 
the United States as anti-imperial because it's broken away from the British Empire. There's also a growing recognition based in part on um, the, uh, the burgeoning um, diplomatic relationship uh, between Britain and the United States, that, that Britain is a better colonizer than, than most of these uh, other uh, powers. Uh, I think France is an interesting one because I think probably a bit that I should have done a bit more on in the, in the book, looking back on it, is talk, spoken about, because I, I look at a, a particular moment in French history when Napoleon III was, was emperor, you know, he'd taken power and declared himself emperor. And so there's a lot of cynicism about France in that particular moment. But I guess it's also significant in, in, afterwards when, the, you know, there's a republic again, uh, France continues to be uh, an imperial power and indeed grows its imperial power. But certainly in the 1860s, uh, the US is very cynical about French power. Uh, and especially in comparison to Britain, France has seemed to be kind of politically um, not as mature as either Britain or the United States. And that has an impact on the way that um, it conducts itself in, in terms of its, um, its, its foreign policy and its imperial policy. So, um, yeah, you get this kind of, as I said, it's the sort of hierarchy of empire, that, as Americans would see it, mostly with Britain at the top and probably with, with Spain at the bottom. Um, and, um, and of course, with, with Spain, sorry to, to go back to Spain, uh, and to, to a lesser extent with France, a lot of this is because um, they're Catholic countries and they're not seen to be, you know, as, as, uh, as, as politically mature, as I said, but also kind of not as culturally mature, I suppose you'd say as well, um, that they've got um, various different kind of deficiencies. And the way that Americans see this sort of manifesting itself, playing itself out, is that um, they uh, tend to be much more, as they see it, as I should, I should stress, um, as they see it, uh, these lesser forms of empire tend to have to impose themselves much more harshly, they tend to be much more violent, they tend to be much more um, aggressive, uh, and repressive of the populations that they're ruling. Uh, they tend to be much less efficient uh, as they would see it. Whereas, you know, those who look at Britain and, and regard it more favorably would say, well, Britain is, you know, is, is <laughs> if I can put it this way, is, is much more like the, the, the empire that Americans would like to be. You know, it's based a lot on controlling uh, financial flows, on, you know, controlling the global economy. Uh, Britain, rules more efficiently you know it uses if you look at india you know it uses um uh, local officials much more you know it's it's uh, it's it's less violent but one interesting thing about that of course is when britain uh, transgresses those kinds of views as in the case that i look at with egypt where there's an incredibly violent you know, there's a war basically uh, that, that goes on um that that's a, that's a problem and they either have to say well this is an aberration or they have to say well this is the problem with empire that it's based on violence and um, and that's what the all, all of these power uh, all of these imperial powers are, are ultimately doing i mean i think it makes sense too based on the people that you're looking at in the book so i mean they are all kind of waspy right they're white anglo-saxon protestant mainly because that is the foreign policy making elite in america and i just wondered if you could maybe say a little bit more about who these people are and how they come to influence policy in washington yeah, so you're absolutely right, and this is a, undoubtedly a limitation of the book. And I, you know, I, looking back on it, once you've finished, you know, you're always thinking about things that you could have done a bit differently. And I think probably the 
the thing that I should have made more of is 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 uh, are other voices that, that that were that were there. I do try to include some of them, but most of the people that um, I, I focus on, as you say, they're they're kind of they're wasps. They 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 tend to be elites. They're very much part of uh, what you might call a foreign policy kind of club, uh, or at least a political club. So, you know, this is another. Um, a fascinating kind of strand that's running through this is that the um, the the policy making apparatus and the uh, and, and especially the foreign policy making apparatus is growing during this period. And again, you know, it grows a lot more in the early twentieth century. But uh, during the, the the period that the book focuses on, it moves from you know just the, the State Department is growing. There is a, um, a development in the way that um, uh, that the policy is being made. But yeah, most of these people tend to, to be to be elites. They're 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 born into wealthy uh, families. They um, uh, tend to have a, you know, a probably fairly conservative view uh, of uh, the world. Um, they're not um, uh, they're not especially concerned with. Um, you know, uh, radically changing the the nature of uh, of, uh, of the foreign policy apparatus, uh, and so that definitely influences the way that they they think about things. I mean, having said that, um, there are you know there are some more kind of I suppose radical voices in the book. There's certainly like some uh, some of the radical Republicans at the time of Reconstruction, for example, have a lot to say on on foreign policy. Uh, some of them. I guess, ironically, want the US to take a more interventionist uh, uh, role in the world, as, especially in the Caribbean. I mean, if you take uh, the example of Cuba that I talk about in the book, some of the radical Republicans want the US to intervene in Cuba because, of course, there's still slavery there under Spanish rule. And so that would uh, that would help to, to get rid of that and close down the problem that, you know, the the uh, southern slaveholders might just move their operations into the Caribbean. So the, these these kinds of uh, things are, are there as well. But for the most part, the the, the people uh, who I write about are you know, a, a relatively uh, conservative. They're 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 sort of um, they have and of course a lot of them have connections with um, uh, with uh, the, the the European colonizers so that that influences the way they they think about things as well this is Paige, the co-host of giggly squad and i want to tell you about a company that i've been loving olive and june olive and june gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box and if you break it down it really comes out to two dollars a manicure which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I don't think it's a fault of the book at all, actually. I think it's 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 um it's revealing about what what American foreign policy making was like in the 19th century. I mean, we're talking about a State Department with less than 100 staff. We're talking about a city that doesn't, you know, there's no foggy bottom in, 19, in 1860. So it's a different place, a different time. I just, you, you were sort of alluding to what Washington was like at this time. And I wondered about that foreign element, about Europeans in Washington. Did you come across anything where plenipotentiaries or ministers or there wasn't ambassadors at the time, not until 1893, I think, you know, what, what influence did foreigners have in DC at that time? Yeah, so I think uh, they they did have they did definitely have some influence, and it is um, I mean it is fascinating to try to recreate the uh, the the world that existed there, like you said, when it when Washington was still a, a small place, and um, and it, it was considered to be a you know diplomatic backwater for for still in most of the period that uh, that I'm writing about, it it wasn't considered to be a kind of plum appointment at all. So um, yeah, I, I, so there there is a. a, a it is kind of interesting to read about how one uh, minister calls on another one, and they they have a have a discussion about a, a particular a particular issue. Um, so yeah, I think there's a there's there is certainly lobbying that goes on. There is um, a, a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of uh, back and forth about uh, about particular issues. Um, I think. One of the most significant uh, areas, though, is the fact that certainly in the in the two cases, I mean, the, the, the two cases I'm I'm talking about in the in the first part of the book about uh, concerning Mexico and Cuba. Of course, what's more significant, perhaps, is the fact that that there's a lot of lobbying by um, uh, Mexicans and, and Cubans in Washington as well, and I think that's that's hugely significant um, in the way that, that Washington thinks about it. It brings a lot more pressure for um, intervention in both cases as, as a result of that. But again, I think it's significant that, I mean, intervention is a, it's a, it's a difficult phrase to pin down and there are all kinds of different ways that um, Washington does intervene, but, there's, but what a lot of um, advocates of intervention are calling for is actually like a military intervention in, in Mexico or especially in Cuba, uh, because um, lots of people want to get rid of Spain, they want Cuba to have its independence and so on. So I, th that's really the way that, um, that I see 
the influence of um, of kind of foreign actors, as it were, in in, in Washington. Uh, but I think it is significant. What I was going to say there is, that I think it is significant that um, uh, in the end they don't do that, and and you know, you, so you can probably see the influence of of, of um, British, uh, French uh, um, uh, ministers and uh, and others um, in the in the kind of Washington community. Uh, limiting the, uh, the 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 extent of um, well how far Washington was willing to go, um, but you're right. I mean, I think um, yeah, thinking about this this world and how it operated, I think is is is, is very um, valuable kind of exercise because it it is so different from the way that that we conceptualize uh, American diplomacy and um, the foreign policy bureaucracy of, of of Washington in the in the twentieth century. This is this is great, by the way, uh, Andrew. Um, I wanted to move on to the some of the later parts of the book and some of the case studies because one that really interested me was the chapter that deals with the Egyptian Urabi Revolution. And I was just I just thought maybe you might be able to tell us how that uprising helps to shape American foreign policy. Yeah, so I'm I'm really glad you liked it um, because it was definitely the most interesting and fun to write. It was the, the one I enjoyed the most, um, partially because I didn't know a huge amount about Egyptian history and politics uh, before I started doing it. And I chose it in part because I couldn't find that much on it. And it seemed to me something that was uh, at least worth exploring a bit further, especially because there's been so much attention to Britain in India. And so I thought I'd, you know, at least look at something something slightly different and something that I hadn't seen a huge amount on in, in relation to the US. I think, having said this, I think um, in some ways it's the one that uh, is the, of all the four cases in the book, it's the one that received the least attention from policymakers and even from uh, the sort of, whatever you want to call it, the engaged public. And I think that's because um, it was, you know, first of all, it's far away from the US. And so it has no immediate impacts on what the US is trying to, to do regionally. Uh, and I think uh, it's just one of those, those cases where, you know, most Americans didn't know at the time, didn't know a huge amount about Egypt. Um, uh, if they did, um, it was probably a sense that it was, um, you know, within the Ottoman Empire, but but and, and that empire was struggling, and uh, so so I think um, it's it's hard to make a case, in answer to your question, that it had a huge impact there. But what I think it revealed was some of the kind of. Um, some more of the, the, the kind of contradictions in the way that Americans thought about uh, empires and, and the territories that they were engaged in. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, on the, on the point about uh, political and diplomatic engagement, the Secretary of State at the time, uh, Frederick Frelinghuysen, uh, he took virtually no notice of it. I found very little correspondence in the archive where he was actually uh, saying anything about it and part of that partly that was his kind of diplomatic style uh, but also it, I got the sense that it, it didn't mean a huge amount to to um, uh, policymakers but um, I think it did reveal lots of these kinds of contradictions and what, what I really enjoyed doing is is 
exploring how these kind of played out in terms of um, some of the um, arguments and discussions they had about you know, what the role of, of an empire was in, in the modern world. And um, I think, you know, if I could characterize it, probably simplify it, I think what it, what the ways that it um, uh, influenced Americans was in thinking about the, the issue of what do you do if you have a, 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 a territory that, you know, is unstable and therefore kind of threatens your interest, in this case, uh, Britain uh, and, and France as well, and how would you kind of deal with that problem uh, where, you know, it looks like society's breaking down, there's there's effectively a civil war taking place and, you know, and, and, um, and so it was fascinating to see the ways that, almost kind of oppositional ways that that, that played out and that you had some people arguing that, you know, uh, Britain was a was a huge bully. That uh, it was there was something very unsavoury about seeing the the greatest naval power in the world bombarding a, a small poor peasant country, um, and uh, this was completely abhorrent. And there's a there's a great illustration from from Puck in the book, uh, the, a, a cartoon. Which shows you know, the the British lion, you know, at the time of the the, the Egyptian invasion, um, beating up these other smaller nations, which you know I felt kind of perfectly illustrated this. On the other hand, you've got this uh, view that you know sometimes these sorts of things have to be done, and uh, and and Britain was only doing what uh, any other empire would have done, and by implication, there's a, there's a sort of sense that. You know the US might have to get involved in this kind of thing as well and you know it's played out in all kinds of different ways most obviously um, in in terms of um, you know race and, uh, and and views of the Egyptians as, as backward as the fact that they haven't uh, become as advanced as, uh, as they should have done perhaps and uh, you know and then then you get these you know really horrible kind of uh, the playing out of these these um, racist uh, stereotypes and so on there's i mean most memorably uh, i suppose that um george mcclellan the <laughs> civil war general who talks about egyptians in this very you know as being like children who need to be educated in the way of the world you know that that kind of horrible stuff um and and so i think it it, it just plays into all of these kinds of debates and ideas even if it hasn't doesn't have a very direct influence on policy making I suppose the only, the main obvious way that it does is if you if you take the the British invasion uh, of Egypt starts off the the so-called scramble for Africa in the 1880s and 1890s, then it, it influences the way that the U.S. thinks about Africa and, and ultimately probably that it gets involved in the, in the Berlin Conference a few years later. Um, but I, I don't think there's any obvious impact. It's mostly, as I said, in the in the kind of in the policy debates and the and the sort of um, uh, the exchange of ideas uh, about what this means for for the imperial powers, I thought it was an interesting case study, not least because there seemed to be other revolts at the same time, especially for the British, whether it was the First Boer War, or, uh, the Anglo-Zulu War, that it, it seemed to fit into the time period, and it reverberates too. I think. I mean, Egypt is going to be a flashpoint in 1909 and 1910, and it's going to make the United States certainly think about uh, the British Empire and whether it really wants to emulate uh, the Brits as much as they initially might have thought. 
Um, you also look at the, 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 the later stage of the book, the Berlin Conference, you've mentioned it as well. And you, you mentioned in the book that it's the beginning of the open door idea. And I love that. I couldn't agree more because I've written about that as well. But I wondered if you could just explain what you meant by that. Right. So, yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, I, well, I'm really pleased that you that you think that because I did wonder whether I was trying to stretch that a little bit too far. But one of the um, one of the things that the, the key thing, I suppose, for the U.S., because they do send they they send delegates to uh, the, the Berlin conference. It, you know, they're not just there in observe, as observers. They are participants in that conference. And that's a very important thing to bear in mind, because uh, I think it's kind of been forgotten a little bit, or it certainly hasn't been, you know, I don't think it's got the attention that it deserves. And I think part of that is because the Cleveland administration, when it comes in, uh, repudiates the, the treaty and so it sort of gets forgotten. But I think at the, that particular moment, it, it is very important. And the way that the US justifies its participation in the conference is that they're not interested in territory, they're not interested in um, the, the, even they're not really interested in the civilizing mission, which is obviously an important undercurrent of the discussions that take place there. Uh, um, what they are interested in is ensuring that the European powers can't close off uh, these territories from uh, the rest of the world. And of course, what they're concerned about is from the United States. So, um, they actually uh, send, uh, the, the State Department sends a sort of trade representative almost to, to, to sail up the, the Congo at that, at that time to look for the economic opportunities which might be available uh, to the United States. What he finds is that he, he declares that there aren't any because these people, again, like going back to their ideas about race, these these people are so backward that they they don't really recognise the the value of, um, uh, of economic progress. So, uh, but but what they they're desperate to ensure is that they they these areas are not closed off for American exploitation essentially. So I, I just saw this as being a kind of proto open door really a, a, a articulating um, these kinds of ideas because that's the that's the the basis really in which the conference on which the conference meets uh, that uh, there are going to be untold opportunities in Africa uh, and the the Americans uh, are, are very concerned to to be a part of that so that that's really what uh, what it is in essence well, I think it's spot on I mean for anyone that's listening that's not familiar with the open door idea or the thesis is that largely that the United States in China in 1899 was seeking open access to trade ports and that it wasn't looking to colonize and it didn't want to see European powers further colonize China and split it up into sort of uh, spheres of influence that were autarkic that didn't trade with with other spaces and I think that's that was the the general gist of Berlin. More importantly, it was a European idea. I actually think the Open Door Notes in 1899 are also a European idea. I think they're a British idea that the American policymakers like John Hay and and W. W. Rockhill uh, latch onto and 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 make American. So it's a really interesting parallel between an earlier 19th century episode and what will become sort of one of the hallmarks of American empire in the late very late 19th and early 20th century. So thanks for that. 
No, it's a really interesting point, by the way, about um, about it being a European idea. I think I think that's right. It's an interesting parallel with the Monroe Doctrine as well, which is obviously a, a British idea that the Americans <laughs> took and, and made their own. But yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't I didn't explain enough about the Open Door, but you've done it. You've done it very nicely. So I think what I'd like to do now is just ask you a contemporary question. You can you can tell me if this is going too far, but. I can't help but think about the parallels between the U.S. and China today and, and, um, and the rise maybe of the U.S. to world power status in the 19th century. You think there's a relevance for the contemporary in your, in your work? And I mean, I mean not to say that the U.S. emulated Europe in certain ways, and it seems to me that empires sometimes uh, learn from past successes and, and failures or missteps too. So are, are there any conclusions to be drawn for the contemporary context that we're, we're in now? Well, I hope there are. Um, I hope there's some <laughs> contemporary relevance to it. And uh, yeah, I, I started it with a quotation for, from Barack Obama and uh, in, in the hope that, that people would see the, the, some of the parallels. I, I thought about starting with the Iraq war. Um, of course, you know, uh, the um, Secretary of Defense at that time, um, Donald Rumsfeld had a lot to say about how the US wasn't an empire, but I just thought he was a more obvious uh, choice. And so people might you know, be more surprised with, uh, with talking about Obama. But I, yeah, I think there's, there are lots of um, at least contemporary echoes and, uh, and, and, and ways that you can see, see it in parallel. I, I, I think uh, absolutely that um, uh, empires learn from other empires, they draw on ideas, even not explicitly sometimes and, and perhaps you know even sort of self uh, subconsciously um in the way that uh, they they think about their own place in the world um i mean i'm not an expert on china so uh, i uh, i'd be wary about drawing direct parallels but i think um certainly if we say that the u.s empire is under some strain at the moment uh, uh I think I hope that would be a relatively uncontroversial uh, statement to make, but um, uh, th there's no doubt that um, you know policymakers in China are, are carefully looking at the way that the the U.S. acts at the moment, but also the way that it's it's acted in the past, and um, uh, and I think um, you know learning from uh, contemporaries and and past examples of uh, of empires is a is a very um, yeah important. Um, uh, uh, thing for for powers that are that are on the rise uh, to do uh, how it manifests itself in in concrete ways I, I probably can't uh, say as much about but you know one of the fascinating things about uh, I think the way that the U.S. empire plays out in the in the 20th century is that for all this talk uh, that that I, I show in the book about being wary of Overseas adventurism of um, of, uh, of military action of um, subjugating uh, people uh, far from uh, the the U.S. mainland as they see other uh, empires doing. It's amazing how much the U.S. ends up doing that in the twentieth century, and um, I'm sure you know Chinese policymakers have. have looked at the examples, whatever, whatever examples you want to take, you know, from the Philippines through to Vietnam, through to Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, and, and, you know, um, sort of uh, taken some of those lessons on board. But it will be interesting to see uh, as, you know, if, if, say, China can't 
uh, you know, if, if say, if um, uh, uh, moves towards um, uh, democracy in, in uh, areas where China has a huge amount of uh, influence uh, arise, whether, you know, it might react in, in, in similar ways. I mean, there's already quite a lot of evidence of that in Hong Kong, I suppose. And uh, yeah, it, it, who knows how it will play out, especially because you know, Chinese influence is just vast now, isn't it? In uh, in Africa and uh, in various other areas of the world as well. So yeah, I think um, there's, hopefully there is some, some contemporary relevance, but I think, um, yeah, if, uh, I, 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 if I was saying anything, it, it is, I, I was interested in the way that um, these these views and ideas played out for the US, especially in the 20th century, because I think there are all kinds of, of parallels and, and lessons for the US, uh, especially as its, its absolute and relative power is seems to be fading at least a bit in the in the um, contemporary context. Thanks so much, Andrew. This is, uh, it's, it's really a great book and I'm delighted that you've come around to your senses and realized that the 19th century is so much more interesting that it deserved a whole book. Uh, 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 no, but in all seriousness, uh, the book gives us a real insight on how the United States thought about European empires and how it, 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 those ideas manifest themselves in US foreign policy. And so for that, I'm very grateful that you wrote it. Well, thank you very much for inviting me on. And if it's any consolation, I'm definitely staying in the 19th century for the, the, the next project. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.